0: You're listening to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lehmiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In recent years, anal sex has become an increasingly common sexual activity. More and more people report having tried it. It has become a staple of modern pornography and discussions about it are on the rise in popular media. Notably, however, it's a subject that continues to be ignored in almost all sex education, which means that people generally have to learn about it all on their own. And it turns out that there's a bit of a learning curve. So let's discuss the ins and outs of anal sex. In today's show, we're going to explore how to approach this activity in ways that are safe and pleasurable, why some people find it to be painful, and what you can do about that, as well as some common myths and misconceptions surrounding this sexual activity. My guest today is Dr. Thomas Gaither, a physician who is currently finishing up his urology residency at UCLA. In addition to conducting research on LGBT health and sexual medicine, he is an active TikTok creator teaching the masses about sexual health. You can find him on TikTok at thatprostatedoc. I can't wait for this conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Have you ever wondered how sex differs around the world? The Sexual Health Alliance can help you to expand your knowledge through their study abroad programs. Join Shaw in exploring different cultures, engaging in immersive learning experiences, and collaborating with international experts in the field of sexuality, while also traveling to amazing places and making new friends. Whether you join them for an online conference, enroll in a certification program, or embark on a transformative study abroad adventure, Shaw provides a platform to elevate your career. You might even get the chance to study in a foreign country with yours truly. Come meet amazing people, gain valuable insights, and be at the forefront of sexual health education. Visit sexualhealthalliance.com to learn more and secure your spot today. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit KinseyInstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting sex science. Hi, Tom, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology podcast.
1: Hi, Justin. How's it going?
0: It's going well. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. So you are a physician finishing up your residency in urology, and one of the main things that you research is anal sex. And you also run a popular TikTok account where you break down the data and research for your viewers. So let me start by asking, how did you get into the world of sexual medicine in the first place, and why focus on anal sex?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, you go to many years of medical school just to focus on anal sex. I've I've had a you know a wide range of uh, responses to that, but in general, um, the main reason why I've I've decided to study that is because there are so many things, so many different types of surgeries that we do in urology that I think can impact it, but we have no idea on actually how it really does it. It's just such a it's a hidden taboo subject that nobody really wants to focus on. You know, in urology, we have a lot to do with erection, 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 and everyone wants to make sure that the erections are, are rocking and rolling, but nobody has really paid attention to the other side of things and how so many of our procedures could possibly affect it. And so that's really what initially drew me into it was that I think that there was a true need and people wanted information about it, but really didn't have a doctor to go to about it.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I think it's so true that in the world of medicine in general, the anus generally isn't viewed as a sexual organ. You know, people tend to think about it more in terms of, Bowel function. And, you know, obviously that's important. But for example, if you think about the world of proctology and, you know, when people go in for treatments for hemorrhoids and other things like that, their main focus is preserving bowel function, not thinking about how that organ might play a role in sexual function for some people. And so I think it is really important to have people like you in the field who are studying this because a heck of a lot of people engage in natal activities, right?
1: Absolutely. And it's funny that you break this up because I'm actually, as part of my research, one of my mentors is a colorectal surgeon. And you know she says that they see people all the time who have receptive anal intercourse and have maybe issues with it, but they kind of throw their hands up in the air and they're not really sure what to do. They, They scope them, they do a good exam, and then they're saying, hey, I can't find anything that I can do. So good luck sort of thing. And she's been phenomenal as a mentor as well, just to give her sort of anatomic and surgical lens to the work. But it is another important thing that even proctologists, even colorectal surgeons, they are all about maximizing bowel function, but they really don't have any training or understanding on, you know, what is the role of anal rectal sexual function.
0: Yeah, and so that's why we need the data. We need to know what are people using it for? What are the issues that they might experience? How can we best help them? So again, it's good to have people like you in the field who are collecting our data on this. So, well, thank you. We're going to be talking about the ins and outs of anal sex today as well as some common myths and misconceptions. Let's begin with Who does it? You know, who's into this activity? And there's a common stereotype that anal sex is, quote unquote, gay sex. But we know that's not true. So tell us a little bit about who's practicing this activity and what we know about how common it is.
1: Well, the best data that's been out, I think, is was maybe about five or six years ago. is was a national study, actually out of IU, where they asked people about all different types of sexual practices. And it was a nationally representative sample of people 18 to 65. And, you know, they found about 40% of women in the United States have had receptive anal intercourse sometime in their lifetime. And for men, this was about 10%. Now, we do know that the percentage of gay and bisexual men is probably anywhere from 4 to 6%, which it's not 10%. So we know that there are people of all orientations that are undergoing receptive anal intercourse. And what I like to try to remind people is that receptive anal intercourse or anal play, whatever, anal sex it's a behavior. It's not a sexual orientation. And there's a lot of people who practice it outside of the gay world. And there's actually, believe it or not, a lot of gay men who don't like it. Like I said, it's a behavior. It's a tool. It's a one way in which to have sex, but it's not the only way.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing all that up. I actually did an episode a little while back with Dr. Joe Court, who has written extensively about gay and bisexual men who identify as sides. You know, these are men who have sex with men who aren't into anal sex, right? So that idea of anal sex as gay sex just isn't true at all and actually most of the people in this world who are practicing it are heterosexual adults so it's a much more common activity than people might think it is and it's practiced by people of all genders and sexual orientations and it's something that seems to be on the rise i mean if you look at data going back a few decades it's a practice that is becoming increasingly common which is another reason why we need more data on it uh so yeah again there's still a lot that we don't know but it is becoming an increasingly common sexual practice Now, let's talk about people's reasons or motivations for having anal sex, particularly as the receptive partner or bottom, as they're sometimes called, because that's where most of your work in this area has fallen. Now, intuitively, people would probably guess that somebody who's engaging in that activity or pursuing it does so because they find it to be pleasurable. But in your research, that's not the only reason that emerged. So tell us a little bit about why people engage in this activity and what they're getting out of it
1: yeah that was the first thing that we kind of started with you know because there wasn't a whole lot of medical research on the anatomic reasons why i mean pleasure and pain and all the stuff with anal sex we started off with just talking to people and just did qualitative interviews and focus groups and one-on-one interviews. And that was one of the main questions we asked people. It's like, why are you doing this? Why would anybody want to do this sort of thing? And, and overwhelmingly, the number one thing that people say, as you said, was pleasure. They found it to be pleasurable, and that's the reason why they continued to do it. But there's a lot of other reasons why people do engage it. One of the other big reasons was that they wanted to give their partner pleasure. And that was a motivating factor for a lot of people that it, you know, somehow enhanced their relationship. It enhanced their sexuality and they wanted to give their partner pleasure. However, another group of people said that, you know, they never really had a desire to be the insertive partner. So there was something about like either they have erectile dysfunction or they just, they never really liked being an insertive partner. And so they went tended towards bottoming. Another reason why some people are introduced to it is because they had Surgery, or they had some sort of prostate problem. Uh, we did talk to somebody who was a who had come out later in life and who was always the insertive partner and he had his prostate removed. And unfortunately, then he had a lot of erectile issues. And so he's like, heck, I want to still have sex. Let's try being the receptive partner. And then he found that he really, you know, found it to be pleasurable. But that was the, one of the reasons that brought him into uh, bottoming was because of his erectile issues.
0: Yeah. So it can be about your own pleasure. It could be about your partner's pleasure. It could be about function related issues or just personal preferences. I think I remember reading in your research that for some people, it also felt validating to them in terms of their gender role or expression or identity. And so, you know, there could be all different kinds of things that might motivate people to want to engage in any given sexual behavior, you know, not just anal sex, but if you look more broadly, like, why do people do anything when it comes to sex? Yes, pleasure mm-hmm. is you know, one of the big reasons there at the top of the list, but we're not so simple when it comes to sex. It's not always just about your own pleasure or just about having an orgasm because we get so much more from sex than just that physical pleasure. Now, something else I saw in your research is that, well, yes, a lot of people report pleasurable sensations during receptive anal sex. There are also a number of other sensations that many of them reported experiencing as well. So besides pleasure, what are some of the other things that someone might feel during anal sex?
1: Well, the most glaring one that everyone talks about is pain and Overall, I want to emphasize that the majority of people who have anal sex actually don't have a lot of pain. They've figured out throughout out of the years with you know lubrication or communication how to accommodate some sort of uh, a phallus or, or toy uh, with a sort of minimal pain. But pain can be certainly a sensation that you experience. And from talking to people, t- people typically feel pain at different times. The first point of pain, of course, is the moment of insertion. So when the penis sort of first goes in, you know, there's a lot of stretching of the anus. There can even be stretching of the pelvic floor, which is a little bit farther in. And just like with any muscle, if you stretch a muscle too fast, it can be painful. So pain is definitely one, and then the other type of pain is just uh, pain at other times during receptive anal intercourse, um, and that can be, you know, sort of friction or a lack of lubrication, or if the, you know, penis is rather long, it can kind of get up near the sigmoid, and and that can kind of give you the sort of punched in the gut sort of feeling. Uh, so definitely pain is one thing, and, and that's something that we're still trying to uh, work out of, you know, how do we tease out someone's pain and how do we make that better for them? But just was with anything in the pelvis, other sensations are like the urge to pee. So the bladder is right above the prostate, and if you have a full bladder during anal sex, it, you can sort of feel that sensation, um, and the other big one is the urge to poop. So especially when people are first engaging in receptive anal intercourse, uh, they get a big urge to have to defecate um, and they, their brain sort of hasn't registered that this is not poop. And so some people, especially at the beginning, don't like it because they get the sensation that they have to poop.
0: Yeah, so it can be a range of sensations. There can be pleasure, there can be some of these other things at the same time. But since pain is something that some people experience during this activity, let's talk about that a little bit more. So what should someone do if they're experiencing pain during anal sex or afterwards? When should you be concerned about it? And do you have any tips on like how to address that or how to reduce or minimize pain?
1: Yeah. Well, the first question I ask anybody who's having pain with receptive anal intercourse is how many times have you done it in your lifetime? So people who are, have less than 10 experiences versus people who've had done it 500, 1,000 times, are going. I think about them completely differently. So if you're first having anal sex and you're having pain, the first thing I think about are, are you having enough lubrication? Are you giving enough time to allow some accommodation? So when the penis first goes in, there, you have to have some moments before you just kind of go to pound town, sort of say, uh, where there is some accommodation of the muscles and things are uh, appropriately stretched. And that has a lot to do with communication. So who is your partner? Is this somebody random that you met off the internet? Is this somebody who you've been with for you know quite some time? It's kind of about talking to people. I remember one person from my interviews who always used to say, I had a lot of pain when it first went in. So I learned that the best way for me to deal with it is just to sit on it so that he could have control throughout the process as opposed to somebody else kind of just shoving it in sort of willy nilly. So uh, there's an aspect of control, there's an aspect of speed, and of course there's an aspect of lubrication. Now, if you're somebody who's had anal sex for years and years and years and years and you haven't had pain with it, and now all of a sudden you are having some pain, that is something that I'd be concerned about and something that I would like people to come and see, people like me, because one thing that we're starting to realize is that men with enlarged prostates actually have more pain with receptive anal intercourse than not. Uh, People often think of the prostate as the maybe pleasure center, but it turns out if the prostate is enlarged, it can have less room in the rectum that there was before and people do complain of pain. The other thing that you can possibly be is like a hypertonic pelvic floor. So there's muscles all over the body, but there are of course muscles in the pelvis. And if those muscles are tight or hypertonic is another word for that, Uh, something like stretching or uh, pelvic floor physical therapy might be ways in which that pain can be reduced.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you making that distinction between pain associated with beginners versus pros when it comes to this activity, because you might be dealing with a very different set of issues there. And there are a lot of people who have tried receptive anal intercourse like once or twice and just say it's not for them because it was painful but maybe it was because they just weren't approaching it in a way that allowed the possibility to experience pleasure because they just tried to go too quickly right and you know that's something that where i think porn sometimes gives people the wrong idea is like you just kind of stick it in and go and you can have long hard fast sessions and it's like you know the reality of How people might do this is very different from what you might see on film, and so if you're trying to replicate something else that you've seen, that might not be at all what works for your body.
1: This actually reminds me of a study that what they did in women in Europe, where they asked them, everyone who had had anal intercourse, and why did you discontinue it? And the main reason why people said that they didn't want to do it again is because it was so excruciating the first time. And it's really interesting that when they studied and they surveyed these women, only one third of the women had used any lubrication. So for the women out there, I mean, the, the anus and the rectum is not naturally lubricated for either men or women. So lubrication is, is a huge component.
0: Yeah, lubrication is definitely key. As you mentioned, also communication is really important. I think there's also an element of sometimes people just aren't a great fit for one another genitally. You know, sometimes, and I made this point before on the podcast, sometimes your eyes are bigger than your holes are, right? And, you <laughs> yeah. know, when you live in a society or culture that sort of puts this value on extra large penis size You might find that visually that's appealing to you, but practically, like having sex with that might not work for you. And so, you know, that's another thing to add into the mix. Sometimes when people are experiencing pain, well, maybe it's because you're with a partner who just is exceptionally large. And, you know, if you want to try and have sex with them in a way that is going to be pleasurable, you might have to approach it very differently, very slowly. Work up to it, build up to it, because, yeah, not all penises are interchangeable by any stretch of the imagination.
1: Yeah, that's pun intended, yes. Yes.
0: (laughs) Now, a question I've heard from a lot of folks over the years is whether receptive anal sex causes long-term damage to the body. And specifically, some people have asked whether engaging in this activity frequently can lead to things like incontinence or other problems back there. And I think you've done some research that can speak to this. So what can you tell us about whether there's any association between frequency of anal sex and anal problems?
1: This is so important and I want to sideline talking about sexually transmitted infections or, you know, HIV, things like that, because we kind of know what causes that. And and that is sort of sleeping with a lot of people, or it has a lot to do with more with a partner than the, your own anatomy. So I just wanted to talk about the long term effects of just like having something inside your anus and rectum for many, many years. And we surveyed people and we asked them, you know, how many times in your life have you bottomed? And we had people who just did, hey, I just done it three times to people who've done it well over 500 into the thousands. And, you know, the one thing that we do think uh, anal sex puts you at risk for is anal fissures. And anal fissures are basically small tears in the anus that usually heal on their own, but sometimes do require some help along with um, colorectal surgeons. But in general, as your number of bottoming experiences has increased, the prevalence of um, anal fissures increased as well. But we didn't find anything else correlated with uh, the amount of times that people had anal sex. So like an enlarged prostate, prostate cancer, rectal cancer, Uh, we even looked at hemorrhoids. So people had the same number of hemorrhoids, you know, hemorrhoids are really from constipation and straining with voiding. It's almost like pressure going the other way, not pressure going in. So there's a big misconception that anal sex causes hemorrhoids. And I I would love for people to realize that hemorrhoids is not from anal sex. It's actually more from your diet and the, your water intake and, and your fiber intake. Now, we didn't specifically ask about fecal incontinence, and I wish that we would have. Now, there are some studies that have looked at it, these like sort of big database studies. There was a small relationship between lifetime exposure to anal sex and uh, fecal incontinence. But the severity of fecal incontinence wasn't really measured. And there's a lot of issues when you have these sort of big database studies and codes for incontinence as opposed to actually examining the patients and figuring out, is this something that is really affecting your quality of life? So I think the, the jury is still out there for whether or not it causes fecal incontinence. I will say, I don't think that it... I can't imagine it'd be a huge thing because the effect size was so small in that study. But I do think that's something that we still need to look out for and study.
0: And I think that's also where some of these studies might not be very well equipped to answer these questions because they're just asking the question so generally, like, have you engaged in receptive anal intercourse or how many times have you done it? It doesn't really look at what is the nature of the way that you're participating in this activity and does that include things like fisting or you know the insertion of particularly large things into the anus and are you using lube and you know are you going for particularly prolonged sessions and you know so there can be so many different things going on there that it's I think kind of hard to say like here this activity is linked to this particular outcome when you don't know anything about the nature of the way people are engaging in it and you know based on the data that I've seen for people who are inserting particularly large things and they're not using lube and they're going fast and all these other sorts of things that's where you might have a greater risk of some of those outcomes but the way that most people are practicing this activity the odds of those things happening would seem to be pretty low.
1: Yes, I agree. And we talked to a lot of people even in our focus groups who had had sex, anal sex for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years and really none of them were talking about having fecal incontinence. Um, but that's just anecdotal evidence. So we, we do need more more work in the area, but at least for the, what we had shown and you know the only thing that really stood out was was anal fissures.
0: Yeah, I think it's also important to recognize that every person, every body is different. And so some people might be more susceptible to problems than others. And that's where it's also important to know your own body, pay attention if you're experiencing things like pain, because the answer is, you know, sometimes very different for different people in terms of the way that they might want to approach activities to protect, preserve their health now for someone who is a beginner to anal sex what do they need to know right so as we were just mentioning it's not as simple as like lube up and go right so give us a little beginner's guide to this activity and for the recommendations that you have would they be similar for pretty much everyone regardless of gender or are there different considerations for different people
1: Yeah, this is great. I mean, I I think in general, whatever you may be in sort of male or female, the approach to anal sex is going to be pretty similar. I think the first thing you got to note is, is that it may not be that what you anticipated it to be when you first start out. A lot of people who I've talked to say that, that their best time was not their first time. And I don't want to discourage people or encourage people. It's kind of whatever you want to do. But but I think the best thing is to do it with somebody who you can communicate with. I think that's very, very important. And really trying to listen to your body. The other thing I would say is, I think it would probably be best to do it sober. You know, not not within a sort of any other substance was on board and that you can really listen to your body. Because if, if your body is giving you signals that says, hey, this feels like a tearing or this feels like a sensation that is not good for me, it's okay to stop. You know? and, and that's a great time to, to bring that up. But of course, lubrication is very, very important. But that, that partner, I think, is going to be really important. I think for your very first time or first few, few times, also important to just be sober so you could really listen to your body and hear what it's trying to tell you.
0: Yeah, you know, sober sex is underrated because so many people, you know, not just with anal sex, but with any sexual activity often feel like they can only do it when they're in an altered state because they might have sexual hangups themselves or they feel awkward or uncomfortable talking about sex. And then when you introduce something like anal sex into the equation and you're in an altered state, whether from alcohol or other drugs, then as you mentioned, yeah, you might not be tuned into the sensations and you might not pick up as much on markers of pain because you've got dulled sensations generally and that's where you can run into potential injuries and other problems that arise because You think that you can go longer and do more than you really should have been doing, uh, but you weren't paying attention to what your body was saying. So yeah, it's thinking about what is your state going in. Also that issue of lubrication and communication. You might also consider things like dilation, right? So maybe practicing warming up a little bit beforehand so that you're in a more relaxed state and things go a little bit smoother, right? So there's a lot of things to consider here. It's not as simple as just like, hey, let's get in bed together and go. Like, and that's where I think porn also gives people this misleading idea is they don't see any of that prep work, communication about boundaries, places where people might stop and take a break, reapply lube. Like, it's not like what you see in porn.
1: That reminds me a little bit of the prep work too. So many people talk about what they do to prepare for receptive anal intercourse. And I didn't even really mention it, but certainly some people use these sort of small dilators or small dildos to kind of get the anus and the rectum prepared and uh, beforehand. And another thing that a lot of people do is, you know, what do you do about stool um, and stool burden? People are a lot of uh, there's a lot of fear and a lot of shame around stool, and there's a lot of different ways that people do to prepare, and probably could have a whole podcast just on. (laughs) how to clean the the rectum of stool but you know there's a lot of things that people do whether that be douching or really a high fiber diet lots of water intake that people do to limit the amount of stool in the rectum but there's a lot of people out there too in my research who did nothing Um, and, and again that had a lot to do with what kind of relationship they were in with their partner
0: yeah let me ask you a question about being a sex educator who focuses on anal sex. So you talk about this on TikTok and, you know, it's it's not necessarily the most friendly platform for sex educators in general, um, mm-hmm. particularly if you're talking about an issue like anal sex. So how do you navigate being a sex educator on social media without having your content censored or shadow banned? I mean, you can never eliminate that risk completely, but tell us a little bit about how you navigate that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, when I first made my first video, I didn't expect that many people to watch it. And it kind of went, there was my very first video I posted, like 80,000 people had watched it. And I, in, you know, once you get a, that many viewers, you are going to get the whole bell curve of people who are praising you and people who think that this is the most disgusting thing, like, you're going to hell. I can't believe you wasted all that time. Uh, the medical degree, you know, I've, I've had people say, there's not enough cancer to cure anymore. Like, I, you know, you hear it all. But what kind of motivates me more is really when people say, when I see people like, I never had any idea that this was, this is the first time I've heard a doctor talk about something that's so affirming to my identity or like, I wish I had a doctor like you 10 years ago. Um, So all that stuff kind of really motivates me. I think when it comes to navigating the negatives around that, I just kind of use it for more content. Like when people say like, oh, this is unnatural. I mean, I think that there's so many arguments against that. I mostly try to use it as all press is good press in a certain sense. Now, in terms of censorship, I've been pretty lucky. I think um, on TikTok, you know, I've coded everything as like receptive anal intercourse. And there was only one of my videos when I was talking about marijuana use and, and bottoming where that it actually got shut down by them. But then I had to basically write to them and said, Hey, this is educational. And then they actually uploaded it. So I've been fairly fortunate when it comes to like the censorship of thing, but I definitely have been in, you know, the ways of negative comments.
0: Yeah, Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, <I'm laughs> you know, sure. It's one of
1: the hazards of being a sex educator on social media.
0: Well, we have much more to say on the subject of anal sex, including the growing popularity of an activity known as pegging, and we're going to dive into that in the next episode. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Tom. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work?
1: Well, thank you, Justin. It was a pleasure and an honor to be here. Majority of people can, you know, follow me on TikTok, uh, that prostate doctor, and I, it's also my uh, sort of email as well, thatprostatedoctor at gmail.com. Feel free to email me if you have a research idea or want to be a part of the research. I'd love to hear from you
0: that prostate doctor i'll be sure to include the link in the show notes so thank you again so much for your time it was great to have you here and thank you to my listeners to keep up with new episodes of this podcast visit my website sex and psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where i hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show you can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates i'm on instagram at Justin J Miller and everywhere else So be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.